what I'm just learning even now is this idea of like, yes, the goal is to to touch that inner center core, to ground yourself in who you are and your identity. But there's a so that, right? So that my family will be better. So that my world will be better. So that the space I hold for people will be better. Like it's not a self-serving thing. It's actually the best thing you can do for the people you love is, is to take care of like your emotional and physical and mental health because then you get to enter all these relationships like kind of with no strings attached. Like you're not looking to find yourself in other people because you're grounded and centered and holding your space. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. Hey everyone, Mackenzie here. Today on the Living Centered Podcast, we're doing something we've never done before. A few months ago, Miles sat down with a dear friend, Stephanie Boyce, for a special two-part interview before and after she attended Onsite's world-renowned personal growth program, Living Centered. For months, we've been telling you all about it, and today, Stephanie is going to give you a first-hand look at this group experiential program. Stephanie is a speaker, yoga instructor, spiritual director, and retreat facilitator. She now serves as a director of the Oaks Retreat Center in Southern California, which you'll hear more about later in this episode. We can't wait for you to hear Stephanie's powerful story of resilience, hope, and connection. Meet Stephanie. Well, here we are. Thanks for being here. I know. I'm so excited. Yeah. This is great. It's been fun just being on the property. So. Yeah, we're recording live from on-site today on the campus. And uh, I've since the day I got an opportunity to meet you, which was out at our new property at the mm-hmm. Oaks in Southern California, uh, there was something about you that I connect with pretty immediately. Right away, I was like, man, uh, there's something about you that's just, mm-hmm. I like how curious you are, um, how engaging you can be. And then it turns out right away, we figured out we had some overlapping passion uh, mm-hmm. around what we love to support people in doing. So um, I'd love for uh, our audience just to hear a little bit about you. If And we let's just start there. Like, Tell us, yeah. who, who is Stephanie? Um, well, that's a loaded question, especially as an Enneagram four. Um, but I have a background in psychology, so that's, that's where my degree started. Um, only child and, um, born and raised in Rockford, Illinois and went into ministry, uh, for about a decade. So I was on church staff there and I just really felt a call to leave staff and pursue writing and speaking. And then, recently have kind of gone on a journey with spiritual direction, yoga, and then coming out to the Oaks. So um, our family story was a, was a big story for us. And we have a lot of difficulty in our story. And so that journey alongside of kind of where I was going with my career um, definitely coincided. So it's, it's been fun to see just how my experience with trauma and grief and pain mm. have led me to the work that I do and almost full circle. So again, when I, when I became, um, got my degree in psychology and, and kind of had pursued that, I never would have guessed it would have landed me where it has, mm. but I'm excited about that. Yeah. And yeah. did you, were you interested in studying psychology? Did you always think you might be in that field? What, what drew you to the degree? Yeah, I think, um, and again, as, as the more I learn about myself, you know, I struggled in middle school and high school, especially with just identity and knowing who I was, um, having the confidence to believe in myself and really feeling like a chameleon. So looking around me and trying to find people that seemed confident in their own skin and then going, oh, well, if they're confident in, in what they like, maybe I like that too. So I spent a lot of time, I think, in high school trying to just find myself and find out who I was, which trickled into my passion, I think, for psychology. 
I think they all say like you have a little bit of brokenness if you're curious, you know, about about that field. And so um, I did. I, I stayed curious and, and got my degree, but um, realized that a bachelor's in uh, psychology doesn't take you um, to the places maybe you want to go. Mm. And it was at that time when I met my husband. So I was pursuing a master's degree and dropped out. And, um, and then ended up moving to where he lives and working at a domestic violence agency. So worked the crisis line for a bit, but that's just hard work and um, takes an emotional toll on you. And um, I was third shift on the crisis line. So that, that was a lot. Um, and so we made some life changes once I got pregnant and then there was an opening at the church. So that's kind of how I got into it. Um, never thought I'd be working with high school kids for a decade. Never thought I'd be on church staff. I was, I was probably more of a misfit than anything. So <laughs> to find myself, you know, sitting in a church building on a church staff was not where I thought I would end up. But um, I'm so thankful that I did. It's mm-hmm. really shaped my experience. And let's talk. So uh, I feel like I've gotten to know a little bit about the professional side. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. referenced a couple things personally. You referenced getting pregnant. You also mm-hmm. alluded to a part of your story. You said that was really challenging at some yeah. point. And yeah. say more about that. Just tell, if you don't mind, just take us on. Yeah. Andrew. So um, I, I think I was like most people. You get married. The next question, when you're going to have kids, they ask. Um, and so, again, I think just looking around me going, well, I guess that's what everybody else is doing. So I guess it's my turn. We started to to try to have kids. And um, got pregnant with my son, Jaden, and went into to preterm labor at 24 weeks. Mm. And then again at 26, which is wow. not not great. Um, put me on bed rest for mm. three months. So I, I, was, <laughs> I was barefoot pregnant. Um, we were building a house at the time. So we were living in a camper outside my in-laws. So talk about a terrible, <laughs> terrible situation. And so had Jaden at 38 weeks and just thought we had made it. You know, he he was healthy and beautiful. He had an enormous head. I remember my husband going, is that normal? <laughs> like we were just new parents and, um, and just so happy that he was breathing and he was present and he was ours. And started doing what all parents do is learn their child. And as we were learning him, we realized that he was not meeting some milestones. And at his three-year checkup, they sent us to a genetic counselor and they wanted to do some testing and they had suspected some stuff was going on. At the same time, I had followed the the chart, you know, the white picket fence chart, and I was pregnant again. And we were going to have a boy and then a girl and three years apart. Everything was going according to my plan, which is so silly even saying it now. But so I had Brooklyn, my daughter. She was about three months old when when we had taken Jaden for his checkup. And um, in that time, they tested him for a disease that is rare and genetic and terminal. Mm. Um, it's called Sanfilippo syndrome or, or mucopolysaccharidosis. And it came back that my son actually had it. And then three weeks later, they came back and confirmed my daughter also had it. Mm. So this white picket fence, this life that I thought I was doing my best at just shattered. Mm. And we would now have to watch our kids progress and learn how to walk and talk and eat. And then by four or five years old, we'd watch it daily just disappear. So um, Jaden and Brooklyn both lost the ability to walk, feed themselves, talk. My daughter had seizures. Um, It was a really rough, rough go. And uh, my son passed away at 11. And then nine months later, my nine-year-old passed away. Mm. So um, in the meantime, we have a a strong faith. And um, it was just in that moment, like my, my husband reacted different. Um, for me, when I got the diagnosis, my my first reaction is I'm going to make every moment count. Like mm-hmm. I am just going to not grieve until they're gone. Like we're going to make memories. We're going to learn. We're going to be better because of this instead of worse. Where my husband almost couldn't interact for a good year with the kids just because he, he, he took it upon himself to protect us and he couldn't. 
Like there was nothing he could do to save us from this. And I, so I think he felt the burden of like, I can't protect my family. And um, so we reacted differently, but we, we ended up coming to the same place just differently. For him, it was getting outside of himself and going to serve this leprosy colony actually in India. And for me, it was just looking at my kids and being like, you know what, they're smiling. They're still happy. Like Jaden, when we were diagnosed, like the day we got the diagnosis, he was running around. He thought it was a party for himself. So he was like giggling like a three-year-old and just happy as a clam. And it was just that moment where I realized like, oh, I'm so not going to be destroyed by this. Mm -hmm. Like, and even in the next breath, I was like shattered, (laughs) you know, like you can say something like that, but then living it is a totally different journey. Yeah. I'm just thinking about being in that appointment that day when you first got the news, Mm -hmm. because I felt a shock internally in having now talked to you about this two, three times, Mm -hmm. but haven't walked the timeline back to hear it. Like, we went in, this was a checkup, they sent us to this, and then I got this information. Yeah. Immediately, did you go to, uh, what, describe that moment. Yeah, so the the checkup, I remember him being like, um, it was back when there weren't phones, like smartphones, so mm. I couldn't Google anything at the time, but he said this was very serious, because I had said, like, what therapy, what pill, what do I need to do to fix this? And he was kind of like, you can't. So it was just... I, Did he have enough information to tell you like trajectory or at prognosis that time, or timeline? He didn't, yeah, at that time he didn't when we had just gone in for the check-in. But then after when I got the news, that's when we knew because we had done our homework. Yeah. So when they called and said, you know, I'm really sorry, but your son has and your daughter has San Filippo, I was, I knew what that meant. It was a death sentence. Yeah. And... Um, how, how common is it? So because it's genetic, well, it's 25% chance that every child I have could have San Filippo. Um, it's recessive. So you'll see multiples in families. The uh, most current statistic, I think, is one in 70,000. Mm. But again, because it's happening multiples in families, um, it's probably rare, more rare. And there's different versions of it, too, but... Um, right now, they're pursuing some research to find a cure. My kids participated in four years of research kind of as a placebo group. Yeah. Of like this is what a child looks like without treatment. Um, so I'm really proud of them that that they did heroes work, we say, because they, they did a lot of testing and, and a lot of things that they didn't have to do mm. um, that they wouldn't get the benefit from. So And now kids are, which is so cool because parents call me and they're like, thank you. Like, thank you for... For doing that, so did uh, did they get to an age of development where they had an idea of what was happening? And when at what point did you start talking to him about it? Yeah, so Jaden probably developed to about about four years old developmentally, yeah. um, and then my daughter more. So my daughter had hundreds of words, mm. and she got very very frustrated when those started to disappear. Oh. It was just six months of her hitting and just being really aggressive. And she was mad. She was mad. She couldn't tell me what she needed. Jaden's personality was so different. So, so Jaden like was all sweet and just calm and, and Brooklyn was spicy and just, you know, you knew what she was thinking. Um, Her hair was as big as her personality. And so um, they handled it differently. And Brooklyn's was more rapid and violent because she had more to lose. And then she started having seizures where she stopped breathing. So Jaden, you would maybe say he did it more gracefully, but but they both had this personality that it was just magnetic to everybody they met. They just had the spirit that when people took the time to look, because usually when when your child has a disability... People stare a lot, but when people could get past the obvious and look to who they were as people, they were radiant and they could just draw people in. Mm. It's interesting. I had an opportunity to do some equine work this morning and Megan was saying how how 93% of us is nonverbal communication. And it brought me to tears actually, because I was thinking about my children and how much of their life we spent in this nonverbal communication role. 
um, of me leaning in and backing up in the same way I was doing this morning with the horse. And it was just remarkable to think about. They gave me this nonverbal language that I feel so comfortable sitting in. And it actually influenced my prayer life and the way that I talk to God. Cause a lot of times you don't hear this like audible voice back, but it just made so much sense to me in my relationship with my kids. Um, and it affected me both like spiritually and in this unique way. Mm. So I'm curious about the, if there was a moment that clearly comes to mind other than you've just described a couple of really hard ones. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about the day you got the news and then you talked about the day that they passed. Yeah. But uh, was there a moment in between leading up to that you would describe as this was maybe the hardest day? Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, on the flip side, I'd love to hear if there was a moment that you felt like maybe one of the best memories you had of both. Yeah. <laughs> I think the funny thing is, is like, even though these are like big, huge moments. Um, one of my hardest days was when my daughter got lice. <laughs> I just remember melting down the wall. Mm. And that's when Justin, my husband was like, oh my gosh, you, you can't fall apart. Like you're the sane one. <laughs> you're like, you're the calm mm. collected one. And you just literally slid down the wall in tears. I think we have a problem, but it was lice. Mm. So that was, um, that was one of my hardest moments. And then out the hours that followed picking it out of a child's hair that didn't understand what was going on. But I think it, I think the hardest days for me was when I lost sight of what I was doing and I mm. got consumed with the circumstances. Mm. Having three children in diapers was a big one. You know, just the, the reality of caregiving and the toll it takes on a marriage year after year, day in, day out, always wondering if you know, you're going to wake up and your child's gone, not even being able to go to Target and pick up the groceries you need because you can't do two wheelchairs. Like it was just the logistics um, of of the weight of carrying two terminally ill children um, that over time, I think, became a lot. Yeah. But if I chose to see and if I could change my perspective in those moments, there were so many treasures laying amongst the brokenness for me to see. And actually, as their disease progressed, we would say that we saw more of them. Mm. We would consider it the more spiritual and, and, and the more like Christ they became to us because the less and less they became of the world. So it was less and less about what they could do and their abilities and more and more about their essence of who they are mm. because they're breathing and they're human and they're mine, you know? Mm. And so... So many times I got to watch them live out their purpose because we did youth ministry. Like we would, we would have a lot of kids in our house and many of those kids went on to do work with special needs oh, or wow. medical field work. Um, there was a student that we had that struggled with some really deep traumatic stuff. Um, and we had the honor and privilege of walking with him through that trauma and I remember this moment that my son was watching this gentleman cry on my couch and he just sat in front of him. He didn't say a word and he took his hand and like the tears just continued to fall from this young man. And he still credits my son to part of his healing for just sitting with him in the tears. And to me, it's just such a beautiful picture of like what we're supposed to do for one another is it's not about, it's not about saying the right words all the time. It's just about like holding that space and being with people as they're navigating the hard stuff in this world. Yeah. So, yeah. Having sat with and walked alongside a lot of brief parents, it's, you know, so I know it's a kind of a club nobody wants to be in. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the most challenging losses, not that you can compare, you know, grief is grief, but is. there is a traumatic element to mm -hmm. the grief of losing a child mm -hmm. that is kind of indescribable uh, in the people that I've talked to uh, that, and we do, as you know, with our foundation, I talked to you guys about this program, we'll take brief parents through a program every year, a traumatic, kind of a traumatic grief program, a week long process. And, I hope at some point you guys get the opportunity and I, and I know you've had some uh, uh, counseling and emotional mm -hmm. health experience prior to and got a little education in it too, which is awesome. Yeah. And, 
but I was hopeful that you'd get the opportunity to be a part of that. Uh, at some point, um, or maybe what you're getting ready to be a part of, but before we get there, uh, you, and, and, oh, I just want to reference back something you said Mm -hmm. when you were describing how it was either your daughter or maybe both where you said they had this unique ability to, uh, draw people in Mm -hmm. and, I've heard that a lot from parents who had kids or adults that preceded them and they lost them too soon that if they, if it was expected or unexpected, there was some kind of deep, almost divine wisdom, Mm -hmm. uh, an old soul type wisdom that they had the ability to be with people in this presence. It's almost like we're going to gift the planet in this way. And it sounds like your kids did that. Yeah. When, When you got to Tennessee and you spent the day on our campus today, uh, to a lot of our team, uh, because we're going to be working together with some of the on-site West stuff we'll be doing out at the Oaks. And uh, I've introduced you, I think, the very same way that you just introduced me to your two children, mm. which is you have this ability uh, mm. to draw people in. And so I've got to say um, some of that was probably divine in them, but a lot of it, I would say, well done, mom. Oh, wow. Um, thank you. I I don't take credit for <laughs> for any of it. Um, if anything, I was their student. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I hope I hope that's what people see. Yeah, I think it's a way to um, to move forward with them. Yeah, that's it. You know, for us, that's been that's been part of our healing journey is to take them with us Mm. into the places we go. I think what's so hard is I'm super sensitive to our experience because I would say that being present for their passing in the way that they passed was a gift. Um, It was holy and and peaceful, but that is not the story for everyone. Um, And I acknowledge that. Because trauma is a real thing. So when you are, you know, we had 10 years essentially to work our way gently and using counselors along the way and lots of conversations along the way with hospice. We were part of a hospice team for four years with them holding our hand to these days. So I don't want to take lightly other yeah. people's experience that would not say it was peaceful. But for us, the comfort is that they are still with us and leading us and guiding us and influencing us. Um, and so I feel a great honor to continue to be there, yeah. their mom, and to share their story. And hopefully, if I can be anything like them, that would be great. Well, I just, I think it's such uh, maybe the greatest honor because I know they're... Um that's one of the saddest statistics. And there are a lot of statistics specifically of Brown bereaved parents who have been studied, uh, the rates of depression, the rates of anxiety, mm-hmm. higher risk of suicide. Yeah. And in a sense, and, and I, I don't get it from having been there, but I understand it, uh, how so many parents that lose kids, you just stop living the day that you totally. lose your children. And one of the things that is the biggest gift of watching people emerge out of these programs is they say, there's this shift to where they say the best way I can honor the the loss of my kid is to bring them along, but also just to live my best life Absolutely, and bring them along with me. And I feel you and Justin do that really well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the way that you honor them in describing to us who they are, I would describe that that's what you're living into mm. in your calling and uh, spreading it to other people. And it's just beautiful. And something um, you mentioned there towards the end of the, uh, when you were sharing a little bit about that story, you said, uh, three kids in diapers. Yep. So we haven't gotten to that part Whoa, of the story yeah, yet. Yeah, so t- yeah. t- tell us. Yeah, real quick. Um, so yeah, we got our diagnosis and uh, my husband said, oh, I don't think we're done adding to our family. And I'm like, you are insane. <laughs> like, I know I'm not good at math, but I do know like these statistics and they're not good. Like, um, and so we just had an opportunity to really trust that if we were supposed to add to our family, it would happen in the right way. But, um, I'm pretty type a, well, I used to be, I'm in recovery, but, um, I used to be very controlling and I'm like, okay, well, if, 
the good Lord wants me to add a third child, he's going to have to make it happen. So I'm going to take control of like how that's going to happen. And um, so we looked at all of our options, you know, sperm donation, surrogacy, adoption, adoption, special needs. Like we were, I was just trying to manufacture the child that was supposed to be in our home. And I got a very clear indication that I was not in control. (laughs) Um, And so we decided that we loved Jaden and we loved Brooklyn exactly for who they are. And we would love a third child, no matter how they came to us and no matter how they got here and what they look like and silly for us to think that we were in control. So um, we got pregnant and for 10 months, you know, I had to wonder and wait and, and see. And I remember having this moment where I was holding my daughter and her name is Elliot. I was holding her and I just remember waiting for the test results being like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I can't bury a third child. Like, she's going to not have to have San Filippo. And it was it, it was in that moment that it was just like a really human experience for me where I was just like, I'm out, but I can't be out. So, like, how am I going to do this? Mm. Um, and we got the test results back, and she doesn't have San Filippo. She's not even a carrier of San Filippo. So, she, like, her children, she's the other side of that math equation, um, she's a 25% chance that won't be affected. But it was that moment where we had now terminal and typical living in our home. Like we could no longer hide. We had to enter into the world of, of quote unquote normal. And so it, it, it was a journey. And then walking a, a child, because she was the youngest one, like I walked her through, uh, you know, the journey with her brother and sister. Like she was present for all of that. Mm. So having conversations with her, like what is cremation? Try having that with a five-year-old. Like, you know, so it's like really real stuff that she's experienced and been shaped by. And so as a parent, as I'm navigating my own grief, I'm also walking my child through it. So the emotional health and wellness and honesty and vulnerability in that alone, like I know other parents struggle with that as well and how much do I share and how much do I not? And so I think we've done a pretty good job because we've been really intentional with creating spaces and opportunities for her to express her own grief without having to carry ours, if that makes sense. Yeah. I've met Ellie and boy, she is just a ray of sunshine, a special little yeah. girl. I mean, it's yeah. unbelievable. I can't wait to see what she, because she's already contributing to the world around wow. her. I can't wait to see what she decides to do. Yeah, once you, If you meet her once, you can't help but have that smile on your face because yeah. she's Aww. just so special. Yeah. Every one of us can relate to having pain and struggle at some point in our story. For decades, Onsite has helped people overcome pain and adversity and reconnect to themselves and others. In that time, we've come to understand that trauma isn't reserved for a select group of people, but rather it's a universal part of the human condition. What we know is that the more you know about trauma and the more you understand its effects, the better equipped you are to step into the core truth of who you are. We believe that you can learn from the experiences of your past and not let it dictate the circumstances of your future. That's why we created a new seven-part video emotional wellness class, Right-Sizing the Wrongs, How to Recognize, Reconcile, and Repair Our Trauma. Right-sizing our painful experiences helps us show up more fully in every aspect of our lives. It helps us become a better parent, a better leader, a better partner, a better human. Join us for Right-Sizing the Wrongs. And for a limited time only, you can save $20 on this $69 resource when you use the code PODCAST. Sign up now at onsiteworkshops.com slash trauma. Well, there's uh, a million things I'd love to talk to you about. We've just scratched the surface and gotten into your backstory a little bit, but uh, we're going to have a little more time to talk um, Mm -hmm. in a little over a week, which I'm excited about because one of the things that we were thinking might be a good idea 
we were talking many months ago about how you could help us visualize uh, hosting some of our workshops in at the Oaks in California, seeing that that's yeah. your, you know, you Justin's property that you're helping oversee is if you really understood our programs uh, mm-hmm. from the inside and, you know, you came to meet some of the team, but really you came here to do our living centered program. Mm-hmm. That's the primary reason you're here and you're within couple hours of getting started. And I'm yeah. just curious, uh, you know, we don't often, I get to talk to hundreds of people every year at the time in the seat that you're in right mm-hmm. before they come into a program. My experience is everybody shows up a little differently. You've got a little more familiarity with me and the team and the program. Yeah. However, I'm just curious, you know, what are you feeling? How, how are you coming into yeah. to the program today? Um, I'm curious. I'm open. Also nervous. I think when when you have spent some time being vulnerable, which I, which we have in our story and I've done therapeutic work before, I know it's coming, you know? And, and I think sometimes knowing that you're going to cry or knowing you're going to have to say things that are going to touch your heart or knowing you're going to be stretched. I know the other side of it. And I know that that's like work that I invite and want to do because I want to be better but the process sometimes can be painful. So I'm a little nervous about just what it's going to require from me emotionally to find those, those breakthroughs and to, to continue to grow as, as a individual. So, but I'm really excited. And I also feel like there's just so much value in experiencing. So it's like, don't just tell me about your program, show me your program. Like Mm -hmm. I want to know the ins and outs. Um, One to meet people that are coming from onsite out to the Oaks. Like I want to know what they, what they're talking about when they say they've done the living centered program. Um, I want to feel what they have felt. And I just think walking through the experience from a hospitality point of view, as we create those spaces, um, as you bring people on site west out to us, like we want to know how you do the things that you do. So there's a nice transfer of an experience because Mm -hmm. with your healing hospitality and things that you guys do well, we want that to translate over to the Oaks. So I'm really excited to just be on the ground Mm -hmm learn from your team. You guys have been at it for a while and we're just still a startup out there. Yeah. So I'm just really excited to, to just soak it all in and experience it. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, in your case, I think yeah, for everybody, I think it's always a dual benefit, but people underestimate that they come into a program called living centered program and they mm-hmm. assume, uh, I'm, I'm going to work on all this personal stuff and hopefully walk out of here and live a better life. And, 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 and a lot of people do. I'm proud of the results our program can deliver. But I think sometimes what surprises people is not only do they live into a better life, but also they lead in a different way. Yeah. And there's always this dual benefit professionally and personally. What I'm just learning even now is this idea of like, yes, the goal is to to touch that inner center core, to ground yourself in who you are and your identity. But there's a so that right? So that my family will be better. So that my world will be better. So that the space I hold for people will be better. Like it's not a self-serving thing. It's actually the best thing you can do for the people you love is, is to take care of like your emotional and physical and mental health, because then you get to enter all these relationships, like kind of with no strings attached. Like Mm -hmm. you're not looking to find yourself in other people because you're grounded and centered and holding your space. So I think as I turn 40, like those are the things that I'm looking forward to. And I think the Living Centered program is going to be that journey for me. It's like coming at the perfect time in my life to just make that milestone marker of, okay, that was my big story, you know, but I don't want to be known for my worst day. Like I want Mm. people to know me, hopefully, like you described me as like this magnetic thing that draws you in so that I can hold space for your story. Mm. And that's important to you. Why? Because I think that's why we're all here. Mm. I think, I think we're here to do this with each other. We belong to one another. Right. So I've been so blessed by people taking the time to hear and hold my story, people to enter in and help me in both tangible ways, emotional ways, physical ways. Like I couldn't help but pay it forward. And honestly, it brings me great joy. Yeah. 
to just be with people and watch this transformation in whatever way that looks like, um, help them feel safe enough to have those aha moments. And if I can be a part of that in any way at the Oaks, like that's what I want to do the rest of my life. I'm super excited that you're heading into this week and uh, honored to be able to be part of the team that hopefully gives you the gift Mm -hmm. of uh, uh, what I know that this process can deliver. Yeah, thank you. Mackenzie again. Listening to the first part of this interview was such an impactful experience for me. The way Stephanie vulnerably leans into her hope, grief, and joy simultaneously was such a gift. I felt like the first part of this interview was so powerful it could stand alone. But I'm so excited for you to hear the insights that she shares next about the Living Center program. So much of what she shared was unexpected while also articulating the beauty of the group experience at OnSite. Here's part two. All right, my friend. Hey, Stephanie. It's Hello. good to sit with you again. We've been, uh, it's been a week since we sat down, uh-huh. or right around a week. And um, I'm just curious to see how you're doing, where you are. I know we talked a lot about on the front end, your story, just getting to know you. And then right up towards uh, the moment where we bookmarked was when you were uh, an hour away from going into a Living Centered program. And so, you know, obviously I think I am as, as well as I think it'd be helpful for our, our listeners, a lot of which are people who have been through on-site type workshops or other emotional health initiatives and a whole lot of people who are thinking about doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I am curious about the through line, um, yep. as, as I think a lot of people will be, of what it's like to... Uh, unpack some of your story, who you are right before, and then the feelings, you know, about going right into a workshop where you know you're doing a deep dive and intensive. And then what's it like a day after? Uh, Yeah. yeah, But but also, I think whatever insights that might have come from your experience, um, I'd love to hear about some of those too. But let's just start with a check-in. How are you feeling? Um, Emotionally and physically exhausted in all the best ways. It's like when you put your mind to um, like a good run or you run a 5K or, you know, where you're like you've trained and you're ready and then you go in and you're like, you're done. You're glad you did it, but you're so tired. Mm. Um, So I slept well last night, which Mm. was great, but it's it's heavy work. And I knew that going into it. Um, I feel like I love how you said deep dive because that's what it was. So I feel like now I'm coming up to the surface again from being down in the depths. And yeah, I think it's it's going to be weeks and months to come of just processing all that I experienced. But it was, I think a lot of people have said life-changing and it certainly was for so many of the people I was with and for me as well. So it was um, great. So Thank that, you. I'm so glad to hear. And I, it, it is, you know, a lot of times I wouldn't ask people a lot and I want to respect your process. So I don't want to go too deep into what you might have unpacked uh, Mm -hmm. because I think that is sacred in in many ways. And I think there is a timeline that you need to be patient and graceful about when you talk about it. Uh, But whatever you are, feel comfortable talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm okay with today just because I think it would be in support of other people. But what you referenced about the work uh, being deep and feeling and um, exhausting. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, working with a new trainer right now, a physical trainer uh, on my physical health and uh, or fitness. And I have a history of starting and stopping when it comes to fitness. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people I hear, a lot of people do. I often have a hard time getting over the hump of where you get your cardio to a place where you feel uh, you can sustain it and Mm -hmm. it becomes therefore fun. And you, and and I talk to some people who it's their main coping mechanism, even for mental health is, you know, they've got to run, they've got to walk, they've got to do things to be their body and the science supports that. But I've also got a lot of injuries and uh, back injuries, sports injuries, different things that also serve as limitations and demotivators. Because the minute I get to a certain point where I feel pain, I tend to be like, well, that's why I don't do this. Mm. And I end up uh, psychologically tuning it out, not making it important, putting it low on the priority list. But something is different this time with this trainer. And we are targeting and starting with the injury, which is what I've always avoided. Huh. which is my core. 
And she's mm. teaching me everything all over again about how to do it properly in support of building up my core. Because she said, you will never exercise or be interested in it again in a long-term sustainable way unless your core gets really solid. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, the metaphor's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in, a, in a sense, I, I, I thought that's really what we try to do emotionally for people here is Absolutely. start working on the core of who they are. And sometimes it surprises people on what they work on and what they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause often it is not something that happened in your life. Sometimes it's some just really reconciling who you are, where you've been, who do you want to become, and then begin to get emotionally fit so that you can start reconciling other things as you go. Does any of that uh, speak to your experience? Oh, absolutely. I know I shared a lot about my story, particularly with my kids. Mm-hmm on the front end of this. And you're absolutely right. I think it was when I got here, I'm happy to share about my kids. I'm very open. I've done a lot of healing and work around that conversation. I had a personal goal when I came here of kind of what I wanted to start with in my story. And it wasn't what I was best known for. Um, it was that core, the the place of emotional pain for me that I have too avoided for a very long time. And I think that was kind of my moment of like, okay, this is why I'm here. I want to, um, as I've said in my group, kind of go back and get that key. Cause I feel like that key is going to unlock a place that I've been really stuck for a while. And for me, when trauma came with the kids, that was about a decade of my life. What happens um, is that takes front and center. And so all of those other issues tend to fall in the background. Mm. And so now that they've passed, it's like, okay, those are still there. And now it was an invitation for me to look at those. And I was even in a group with someone that also had an experience and they too were dealing with the effects of their child being sick. And it's like everything else just shifts down the ladder and that becomes your primary focus. And yet there's still healing in other areas that we have to work through. So um, I was very encouraged to see somebody else in the group with a, a similar story. And then I was also in a group with a bunch of people with different stories. Mm-hmm. And so just to see the interweaving of our stories and how we showed up for one another and we were vulnerable for one another and supported one another. I can honestly say I'm addicted to that connection (laughs) and that vulnerability that slowly emerged over time. And another thing I love is that you come in like with this anonymity. So you just come in with your first name. It's not until the last day you kind of find out what people do. And that was really exciting to show up for each other without having our job or our work or our story be the thing that we led with. What were some things you noticed? There was a lot in there that you shared, um, but what were some things you noticed uh, about uh, the community or your group about not sharing what they do, Uh, being with people for a week and not having any idea what anybody does? What what did you notice? I I just noticed that people became human beings. Mm -hmm. And they weren't of human doings, you know? And it was interesting, too, that once we found out what people did, there was some shifting Mm. of just how people interacted. And I think removing that, it just, just, we all came in kind of in the same place, um, seeing for the same things. It's just these human beings trying to get to the bottom of whatever work we needed to do here. And that was just, it was really freeing. Hi, Candy here from the OnSite team, and I am so excited to tell you about something that we've been working on and I think would be really, really helpful right about now. It's a brand new workshop that we're launching out at the Oaks in Southern California, and I'd love to personally invite you to be part of the very first group of people to experience it. Rediscovering You Live is a three-day workshop designed to help us break the cycles that keep us stuck and move forward with a renewed sense of clarity and freedom. We're going to spend three days together getting clear about our present, unpacking some of the messages we might carry from the past, and carving out a path toward the future that we want and deserve. 
Now, this workshop is built on the same framework as our best-selling digital course, Rediscovering You. But we've worked really, really hard to make sure that this program, Rediscovering You Live, is truly a unique experience that allows you to dive deeper into this framework, but under the guidance of a world-class therapist. Plus, it's all happening at the Oaks in Southern California, and let me tell you, this beautiful property and the warm accommodations and just the sense of peace that you're going to feel while you're there is truly worth attending on its own. So this is all launching May 23rd through 26th, but you still have time to register. So hurry because I would love to see you there. If you're interested in more information, please visit onsiteworkshops.com slash rediscovering you live. You said something else, which I, I loved right before the, the taking the professional hat off. And I think this is so important for people to hear because a lot of people think that coming to a place like this that has a specialty in, in trauma, and, and we talk about that, is that uh, to go there, I'm going to have to unpack, talk about and examine the worst thing that's ever happened to me mm. in order to benefit. And I'll let you speak into that, but I just... I don't think that's true and often mm-hmm. not even necessary uh, mm-hmm. in order to benefit. And that's a myth about trauma therapy that you, it's all about going back into every corner of your, your tragedy and, right. and exploring. Now for some people that's really important and mm-hmm. there's methods to do that in a safe way, but I'm really glad to hear that there's a bigger timeline to our stories. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you really got to explore what parts of me do I want to reclaim and, and own and live into going forward. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I was probably a person that came in with, because I understood a little more about the work that was going to happen and I've done work. I, I had a an idea of what I wanted to have the time be spent on. For others, it just, I think other things came up. So I would even say, and if we're looking at our whole life um, on this timeline, I only visited just a small segment of it. And it wasn't even the biggest part of, of my story. And so um, the same was true of everyone else. And what I love is that everybody was the owner of their own journey and of their own story. So nothing was pushed or pried. Everybody went at the pace and to the places that they wanted to go. Some people went really deep. Some people went to some core woundedness from their childhood, but others stayed in different places. And then there's this part in the exercise where you share your story or your woundedness or your whatever you wanted to share. And then people would go around and say how they related to your story. And I think it was such a beautiful thing for me because I think a lot of people hear my my story with the kids and they go, Oh, I I could never relate or I can't imagine, or you're so strong or, you know, so they kind of put me in this other category, like Mm -hmm. a, I never want your story and B, I could never be strong enough to hold your story or navigate your story. But in this context, everybody could find these touch points in my story that they could relate to. And it actually made me feel not alone. So sometimes I think when we have these big stories, People are well-intentioned, but what they do is they think we're like pain experts, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, I'm like just human like you. And so, and then the reverse, right? So people would share their story and you'd look at their traumatic events and you're like, oh my gosh, that that's horrible. I can't relate. But then the exercise next is like, how do you relate to that story? And you have to find yourself in one another's stories. And it just... It equals the playing field. It, it confirms that you're not alone in your pain. It reveals that pain is pain and there's like no hierarchy of pain. It just sucks. <laughs> and it was just this beautiful way. I think it took our group from becoming strangers to friends mm. um, and being able to share things. People at the end were sharing things that that they weren't anticipating sharing and that maybe they'd never shared before. Um, but they felt safe enough to do it. And then there was this moment of just leaving it all on the field, so to speak, you know, that we were just able to kind of have peace with the fact that this was a certain place, a certain time, it was holy. And it was, it was for this moment that we were united in this space, in this time and place to do the work that we were asked to do for this week, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we like 
packed our bags and went home, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just kind of this beautiful, I think you even said sacred space. Mm. Um, but it's also, I believe, ongoing work that we could come back to these things time and time again and have different experiences or work on different things. And so what a beautiful place and what a beautiful mm. programming to be able to come back and, and continue to revisit things just so we, we're getting better, we're getting healthier, we're making that core stronger. So I, I just, I feel really just overwhelmingly blessed um, both to have done my work that I came to do, but also to hold that space for everybody else in my group. Wow. A lot of nuggets in there and so well mm -hmm. said and such a beautiful teaching and great reminder that you'd reflect back that maybe the most valuable thing was that I don't feel alone. Yeah. I felt really connected with the yeah. way people held me in that. So. And it didn't minimize people's story either. Mm. It it really created like this, we're in this together feel. I think sometimes, um, I'm sure there's a fancy therapeutic word for this, but like a one-upper, you know? So they're like, oh, your kids died. And then somebody's like, my cat did too. And you're like, no, so not <laughs> the same. It wasn't that. It wasn't. It wasn't like, how can my story trump your story? It was literally just us going, me too, me too, me too. We see that pain. We hurt with you. We hurt for you. We hurt for ourselves. It was just this beautiful space that I don't think we create enough for each other mm -hmm. around the dining room table, around the living room, in the house, with our friends, because we're so scared that we don't have the right answers or we don't know how to respond to people's pain, it really isolates us all. And so I think the guide in the room helps us navigate those types of conversations. And I think we share a similar dream of hoping that therapeutic spaces and deep dives are not the only places that those conversations can start to happen. Like mm -hmm. once we've learned and experienced what it's like to hold space and to love one another well, we want to have those conversations outside of a, a therapeutic space too. Mm. We want to go there with our friends. We want to we want to show up and listen and reflect back. We want to do all those things, all those tools that we were given. We want to take into our everyday life. Mm. Um, and so I'm grateful and thankful for that too. That's so well said, and it's a. I think it takes the pressure off. You know, yeah. really good listening and sharing and feedback takes the pressure off having the right thing to say because we never, mm -hmm. you know, because the, the pressure I, I often feel, and I think many of us would feel would be, what's the thing I would say that would be the most useful or not, or the less stupid, you know, what's the thing I would, and, and ultimately the only, you know, the best and most important thing we could do for somebody is listen mm -hmm. and then speak our truth about how we related Mm -hmm. Or what we saw, or what was you know, and what yeah. was of value, and and that's what I've loved about the Living Centered program is it has turned into a place that people don't just feel they come when the wheels are falling off. You yeah. know, they they feel they come because they deserve no different than a car needs a tune up. Mm -hmm. uh, humans, you know, deserve tune ups. And yeah. another thing I was gonna I was gonna mention was, you know, we talked about on the very front end how heavy and hard and the work can be entire. Mm -hmm. And same thing I was talking about with the, the physical metaphor. Like I, I made it sound like I love this trainer and work. Core work sucks. So for people who are out there that might resist coming to a, a you know, a, a program like this or just pursuing, it doesn't have to be with us, but pursuing that part of their story, the emotional mm -hmm. health journey. And they're, and they're feeling like, the world is too heavy. Mm -hmm. I'm too overwhelmed to mm -hmm. go do anything emotionally exhausting or overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there's that element, but for, for a lot of people, there's also a, a fun, um, mm -hmm. light element to a process yeah. like this. Did you experience? Oh you know? yeah, totally. So, you know, I think that's what connection does is like when you take those deeper dives and go to those places and you can remove that false self and be seen for your true self, the fun makes it even more fun there was a person that shared, you know, it's been so long since I've had just good fun without being sober, you know? And, um, and so it was like those insights. And then we played Jenga and it was <laughs> the best Jenga I've ever played. It's like a life-size <laughs> Jenga. We had so much fun because we had, 
we were doing it with people that were seeing us, mm. you know, and, and that changes things. Cause then you're not, again, you're not comparing yourself like, oh, well that guy has this job. So I'm this to him. It's like all that's removed. And so it actually creates this more lighthearted connection. And I think at the end, when you hear everybody grab that mic and kind of say what they've learned or taken away from the experience, people will say, I feel lighter. I feel freer, I have more hope. Cause yeah. I think that when we say yes to going through maybe those, those things that have held us or kept us stuck, what's on the other side of that is that lightness mm. and that freedom and that hope that we all want. So it was, it was actually one of my favorite parts. And, and people that know me best would probably say, that I struggle in the fun department. Cause I'm mm. very comfortable having like deep conversations <laughs> Me too. and yeah. And being serious and talking, but it's more in the fun department. I think that's my next step is to rediscover that adventurous little girl that got too scared to be adventurous when she was being a teenager and scared about what everybody else thought, like scared of failing, scared of getting hurt. Like what if now at, 40, she could step off that high dive and still be a little scared, but do it anyway. Mm. Yeah. I would recommend to anybody scared or not to try out a living centered program mm. because whatever work you need to do, whether it's the work you think you're coming in to do, or it's just the work you need to do that ends up emerging. I think like you say it best, we, we all deserve that. Mm. And to feel lighter and more hopeful and more free in a time like now, I just, I don't know. I don't know what else people would want than mm -hmm. to feel that. So. Was there anything that you learned about this week that you think will imprint even more what you hope to lead us into out at the Oaks? And, and then just a quick vision, what you're excited about out there. Yeah. You know, I think the the biggest takeaway here was, watching people go on this journey together, mm. all kind of coming in with with nerves about what was going to happen. And then by the end of the process, it's like people are change, exchanging numbers and hugging and crying. I mean, like everybody just felt seen and heard and felt like they belong just as they are. And I, I want to be a part of creating more spaces like that in the world. Mm. And I think that the Oaks is going to be this place that People can make those discoveries, those connections. They can be seen and heard. They can become better simply by gathering together. And my big vision for the Oaks is that it would be a place that people would return back to again and again and again mm. and make those deep roots happen and those memories happen where it comes becomes like just a part of our rhythm that we, we return back to the Oaks for certain things. So I know we're gonna have some family reunions out there and weddings out there, and those will be some fun places. Like you mentioned, we'll have your programming out there. But I also think that there's space, we all go through life with kind of like a scarcity, um, like, oh no, it's a competition, we don't have enough. But I think with the Oaks and Bob coming together and you with Onsite, it's it's just an abundance thing. So yeah. it's like, you can go to Onsite, you can go to Bob. <laughs> you know. But um, I don't know, I just have the the feeling that the Oaks will be that, that living room, that table yes. that we keep envisioning where we're not, we don't need to go to those depths all the time that we can have the most beautiful things that we discover at those depths right there in the mainstream, right there in the surface. I think it's one more step in the right direction of giving yeah. people meaningful life experiences where they feel seen, heard, valued, connected, and it doesn't have to have, you know, it's, it's inclusive. It's for yeah, everybody. Some of the stigma that can come around those places, regardless of what your historic doors that you walk through is that you just get to be you. And mm -hmm. so I'm so excited. Thank you uh, for sharing your journey with us uh, last week, today, and also your vision uh, for the Oaks. Mm -hmm. And more, most importantly, I think you've inspired me um, probably a whole lot of other people, hopefully that will listen to this, to just pursue what that key is mm -hmm. uh, for us and to, to make that a priority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
we wanted to close this conversation with Stephanie and Miles with an official invitation to join us at the Oaks. The Oaks is a beautiful retreat center located in Southern California. You can attend an Oaks retreat or rent the space for your next gathering. Head to theoakcenter.com to plan your next event. If you're interested in joining Onsite at the Oaks, Onsite is offering personal growth workshops as well as therapeutic intensives. It's not too late to join us for Rediscovering You Live later this week, May 23rd through the 26th. If you'd like to learn more about Rediscovering You Live or the other emotional wellness offerings coming to Onsite at the Oaks, visit onsiteworkshops.com slash the Oaks. Or you can connect with an on-site admissions specialist at 1-800-341-7432. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If on-site can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.